You're listening to What's Contemporary Now, a show about culture, the people, places, and things that together make it up. It seems a little late to be talking about things that were born of the pandemic, but Hanan Basovic is the fashion commentator who, before being furloughed, never even dreamed he could be doing this for a job. The voice behind the popular handle of I Deserve Couture is the generational juxtaposition to some of our widely celebrated past guests. Having come up through crowd culture rather than any direct industry channels, we discuss the idea of a new new media in the absence of the usually required diplomacy. Given that his entire professional history was in the hospitality industry, his opinions feel pretty well informed. Do he and his contemporaries represent a new fashion audience? This is Anand Besovic, and we're talking about what's contemporary now. Anand Besovic, it's an interesting beginning because you weren't necessarily someone that grew up with the intention to break into the fashion industry, and you actually studied hospitality of all things. So let's talk about the moment when Croatia became a jump to the US and fashion became the new plan. <laughs> I love that. Fashion became a new plan. That's going to be the name of my book. <laughs> but I started looking at fashion in 2010. Mm-hmm. That was my kind of like introduction to fashion. After that, I came to the States. I basically worked in hospitality all my life. My first job was in hospitality. Hospitality was the only thing that I ever knew. I like talking to people. So, you know, I was a natural way as far as a career was in my head. Mm-hmm. But the first show I ever saw was McQueen, Plato's Atlantis. And then I started looking into fashion as a hobby. I never thought that I can like ever have a role or a career in fashion ever until COVID happened. Fashion was like a hobby on the side that I would be like, oh my God, this looks cool. This is pretty interesting. It was very superficial in the beginning mm-hmm. because like McQueen opened the doors for me. And then I realized that there was such a world of beauty and elegance, but by the same token, grotesque and avant-garde and kind of like minimalism and all of these ways the fashion operates. So one of the first people that I Googled ever was Ana Del Russo and like oh, wow, Giovanna. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that era. So, so that era. So for example, like Giovanna. I saw her in New York for this Swarovski event and I told her I failed algebra because of you twice, just so you know. <laughs> and she said, I know, and I'm sorry. I'm like, there's nothing to be sorry about. And then when I came to the States, it was just like following fashion, seeing who does what, who goes where, as far as designers go and everything. And then COVID happened. I was working in a hotel. I was working in reservations. And then when COVID happened, a lot of us got furloughed. I came home and my partner was like, you okay? And I'm like, I don't know what to do. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm like, I cannot leave the house. What's going to happen? He's like, what do you want to do? And I'm like, I don't know. I want to talk about fashion. He goes, well, talk about fashion. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, yeah, that answer was just like, <laughs> you know, it was there. I just needed someone to point it out. And then that's when I started really getting into I Deserve Couture. And when you talk about that first encounter with that particular side of fashion, seeing McQueen's show, was that something that you originally watched on Show Studio or where was it that you first picked that up? So I was one of the people why Show Studio site crashed because I heard it from Lady Gaga. She mm-hmm. said, there's going to be a premiere of my song. And me being Lady Gaga fan at that time and still am, I want to hear the song. And then before the song, I see Armadillo shoes and I see all this inspiration and I see like crazy over the top silhouettes and I see Prince and I'm like, what the hell is going on? <laughs> and of course, when I get that reaction, I'm like, okay, let me study this a little more. And then after seeing Plato's Atlantis, I discovered the Horn of Plenty, which to this day is, in my opinion, the best fashion show of all time. And then I discovered like oversized Lee Bowery lips and garbage cans in the hair and silhouettes. And I think the reason why I really liked Horn of Plenty is because as someone who 
just started seeing fashion, that show was so referential to fashion. Like the first look in Horn of Plenty is inspired by the new look by Dior. And I'm like, my God, these silhouettes are pretty cool. So for me, that was a perfect introduction to fashion because I got a history of fashion in 13 minutes. And after that, I learned about Galliano. I was reading a lot about like Gareth Pugh, Olivier Rousseau and Balmain just got hired. Mark was in Louis Vuitton. It was just like good stuff. <laughs> you know, it was just like, you know what? This is something that I'm interested in. Quick segue. Yeah, did you did you watch Kingdom of Dreams? You're mentioning yes, all I those did. people that were featured. How good was that? Yeah, that was brilliant. Yeah. That was so good. And that's the thing. Like, I love Dana Thomas. One of my favorite books is Gods and Kings. Mm-hmm, of course. And I have to still read Deluxe. And Deluxe is basically based on this documentary. But the documentary was brilliant. I wish that mm-hmm. they did more of those. It's interesting because it's a sort of time capsule around the story of when fashion was made into a business, right? But at the same time, as we continue to see it become more ubiquitous with pop culture and this kind of convergence between industries, be it sports or music, there's still seemingly a lessening of outlets where that type of content is made or featured because I think it lives more in bite-sized format almost across digital media primarily. But I definitely enjoyed that. And it must have been a full circle for you to end up on a panel on Show Studio after first having discovered fashion through that platform. That was just like crazy. I always said there's like two outlets where I want to be, three outlets that I want to be featured. That was System, that was Show Studio, and the last one was BOF. Those three in my head were kind of a validation of something. But that documentary, Mm -hmm. just to go back to it, it was great because it showed business side of it. It also showed the negative side of fashion. Which mm-hmm, I think exactly. that like, we don't talk about a lot. The documentary is so well made that it gives you the reality of fashion. It is not peaches and cream. It's very much, you know, someone commits suicide. Another person was canceled because of the stuff that they said. You know, it was just like the only person, even though he had a problem with opioids, I suppose, was Mar Jacobs. But he is the only one that kind of like made it out of that whole thing. Kind of like a victorious. I hate to say that, but he made it through. But it I was feel like Eliano has been forgiven. He's uh, back in what? the mix I, to an extent. To an extent. I think mm-hmm. it's always going to hover. That's mm-hmm. the thing. Like people of are course. going to always comment on it. Like I think that even the people that are going to mention it, none of them can deny how talented that man is. No one can deny that. It's mm-hmm. just that, you know, it happened and it's like something that like cannot be easily forgotten and it of shouldn't course. be easily forgotten. But it was a great documentary. I wish that they would do stuff like with Alaya, for example, or like mm-hmm. Sauron, like give me the late 80s. I want to do uh, uh, Kingdom of Dreams 80s edition and see what happens there. Like give us the couture houses and how it worked. I would love to see that. Years ago, Colette used to sell this box set of DVDs, and I think that it was titled Fashion! Exclamation mark. I can send you a picture of it because I still have it in my closet. But that kind of has a little bit of a collective across three kind of eras in fashion, which does start in the 80s, and then it goes into the sort of anti-fashion era and forward. I but see. I feel like it touches upon what it is that you're mentioning. So oh, I would love that. In a time where we live under the banner of labels, right? You've been called a content creator, a fashion critic, fashion commentator. I'm sure someone Mm -hmm. at some point is referred to as an influencer. What do you choose for yourself if there was a label that kind of defines that role? I'm not a fashion critic. Mm -hmm. I like to refer myself as a fashion commentator. Because Mm, I think like fashion critics are, it feels like it's an endangered species at this point. Because now everybody is a critic. And Mm -hmm. I love that. (laughs) I love that. 
fashion is very elitist. Fashion is like, there is four critics in the world. No one else can be a critic. I'm like, all of us are critics when we're not on social media. You're a critic if you're talking to your friends about a collection. You know, it's criticism still. Even if you like say that you don't like something, that's still criticism. I just think that fashion critics and this older generation of fashion are thinking that all of these influencers that express their opinion that like we're coming after them. And I'm like, we're not. I want to hear what Vanessa Friedman says. I want to hear that. I want to hear what Susie says. I want to hear what Kathy says. I respect those people. I love Tim Blanks. Tim Blanks was the person that guided me through the fashion with style.com. That's the stuff that I grew up on. You know, nobody's coming after those people. I respect them and I appreciate everything that they do. I do think that, you know, fashion has changed a lot in that sense. You know, now we're talking about the subjects that as much as I respect those critics, no one talked about the lack of diversity. No one talked about lack of body diversity. Those topics were not topics at all. But I think that when social media happened, it brought a new opinions and new points of view and stuff that should be still talked about. You know, we can talk about how amazing Dior is. We can talk about how beautiful Givenchy is. Well, <laughs> not now. But we can talk about stuff like that. But someone has to start a conversation. It's so, absolutely think, true. And, and you're yeah. touching upon the positive side of the democratization of media and people having yeah. a voice. But to just kind of flip it on its head for a minute, what are your thoughts on the lack of historical understanding and education behind a lot of the opinions that are being disseminated across large audiences because social media allows for such a thing? I mean, if Correct. you're unregulated as an industry and you're able to just say what you think in a way that the people who are receiving that information don't necessarily know the right from the wrong, do you feel like there's some danger there or no? I do think that there's a danger because people have to dissect who they're following. Mm-hmm. Like for example, I follow people, don't get me wrong, I love influencers. I don't have a problem with influencer. If you call me an influencer, I really don't care. It's a word, you know, it's not going to cost me and I'm not going to get irritated. But there's different types of influencers on social media. You have influencers that are all about the looks, that are all about the product. And that's great. And then you have fashion influencers that dig a little bit deeper. So I think that like people in audience that follows them just has to realize what is this person giving me in return? Is mm-hmm. it giving me fashion history? Is it giving me their opinion? Or is it giving me product? Like for example, like myself, when I see and I follow a couple of fashion influencers that are all about the product, I don't go to them for an opinion. And even when they say an opinion, for me, I don't take it as I would take someone else's opinion who I know looks deeper than how beautiful a bag is. So I think that like the audience has to dissect who they're following and why they're following them and what that person brings to the table. Now, when it comes to the question of influencers putting their opinion out there that is not backed up, me personally, I have a problem with that because I know influencers that don't know who is the menswear creative director of Fendi. They think it's still Kim Jones. Mm-hmm. you know. And these are, we're talking about big influencers with 1.5 million followers. So in my head, I know for a fact that I'm not going to them for fashion (laughs) opinion and fashion knowledge. For me, that plays a big thing. Now, everybody runs their social media how they want. If they want to like spread misinformation, there's nothing that I can do. I can spread my information that is valid and I've read about it and I can give you the source for it. It's like fighting the windmills at this point. I'm not going to be there every day just being like, this is not true. You cannot do, you know. Of course. But I think that like the audience has to realize who they're following and what they bring to the table. Very, very well said. And as 
<laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> As an outsider that's now becoming an insider, did you ever encounter those moments along the way where it was a little bit of a you can't sit with us type of a situation? Plethora. I, I gave an interview for another publication in Serbia, actually. And I always say, I'm like, fashion is a business of ego. And it is. You know, mm-hmm. we, I had people that <laughs> I was in a group of people and they introduced everyone except me. And I'm like, okay, cool. That's fine. I think all of this like new wave of influencers and commentators is looked down at, especially when it comes to Gen Z. I love Gen Z. I think those kids are beyond cool. And I think that as much as they can learn from new generations, we have so much to learn from them. Because I've never seen a generation that is so active and that is so, I hate to say this, but quick and smart. Like they know their value. Why do you hate to say that? Because I feel like everybody hates on Gen Z. What is the negative of saying that they're quick and smart? Oh, no, I don't take it as a negative. Mm-hmm. I don't take it as any, I think that like people are not going to like the fact that I'm saying that they're quick and smart. These mm. kids like know their value. They're like, I'm not going to work for that amount of money because I'm better <laughs> than that. And that is not what my generation, like I grew up in Croatia. Like my mom was very much like, no, you work. That's it. For any kind of money you work. And these kids are like, no, you're not going to underpay me. And like, that is so smart. I wish that I was like that from the get go. But I think with every new wave of influencers and commentators, there is something new. There is, is something new. So That is a very relevant conversation. That's a very active one in journalism and just, I think, conversations yeah. in general, which is around the idea of, I'm not sure if you saw it, there's this video that went viral of the Gen Z girl crying about having to work a nine to five job <laughs> and not getting home until 6 p.m. because she has to go home yeah. from her job and doesn't work from home and how she's too tired to make dinner or go to the gym. And to me, it was this sort of really alarming thing to witness because she was being incredibly sincere. But yeah, if people don't necessarily have the opportunity to go through the experiences that give you the grit and the wherewithal to have valuable skill sets that ultimately afford you leverage in an industry where Correct. you can achieve success, then we're going to watch mediocrity become the common denominator in the workforce. And so I think there is a sweet spot within it. But to your point, the generation does know that there are examples all too common where being underpaid is normal and that's something they're very much fighting against and even just the notion of work-life balance. So I'm curious to see how that takes shape as as they all get older and infiltrate every industry. But there's definitely a great deal of intelligence there. I mean, no shade. Oh, 100%. Something that's really interesting as well in terms of self-awareness and speaking of generations is in your own ascent, right? With the cultivation of an audience behind I Deserve Couture, there's this sort of inevitable tipping point where things just become official. You know, you're present mm-hmm. at different events and in different editorial content, and you have a very engaged audience who listens to what it is you share. Is that climb something that you're sort of aware of, or are you just too busy enjoying the ride? I don't know. This never started as a career. I never had goals. Mm-hmm. That's the thing. There's that drag queen called Katya, and she said one thing that will always stick with me. She goes, she's like, plans and goals are predetermined disappointments. And I'm like, okay, that is a fair point. It is good to have a goal. It is good to have a plan. But I see what she means. That's the thing about like my account. It came up organic. And I am down to have a great time on Instagram and to talk to people and to start a conversation if the conversation is necessary. But I'm more about like creating the community. I know that like inclusion in fashion industry is myth. <laughs> I hate to say it, but it is true. It is what a do you myth mean by because that? it is a myth because fashion is very it is exclusive and like that is like a badge of honor the fashion wears. 
we shouldn't wear. You know, when Anna Wintour says the doors are open for everybody, I'm like, the doors are not open for everybody. Like, be, because it's not, you know, it's not easy, especially when you talk about like younger designers. Younger designers always ask me, they're like, what is your advice? And I hate to tell them this. I hate to tell them this, but it is the best advice that I can give them. Be you and connect and network. Because this industry is about networking more than talent. I'm seeing creative directors that are becoming the directors of the major houses that like are great at networking. It's a club. It's like a, a club where everybody wants to get in. And there is a huge line in front. And Anna Wintour is in front as a security and being like, yeah, you cannot come in. It has this like exclusion to everything that's being done which I don't like. For example, like when I go to Milan or to Paris or to London or to any fashion capital, I'm like, hey guys, I'm in this I bar. I love that you left out New York. Yeah, it's, <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't shady, it wasn't shady. There, there's great brands in New York, uh, two of them, I'm kidding. But I tell everybody, hey, I am at this bar, come say hello. I'm not charging for a meet and greet. I'm like, let's sit down, let's talk about fashion. There's one thing that all of us can agree on and is this like passion for fashion thing. You're going to meet new people. And I like to see people in person. I like to see people having a good time. So I do my meetups here and there whenever I can, when the schedule allows me to, you know, and it's, I, I like the fact that it's inclusive and I want my platform to be inclusive. So I don't know, it, it, it just brings me joy when it comes to that. Well, speaking of inclusivity, the whole look of a front row changed years ago when we saw people like Tommy Tom, Brian Boyce, Susie Bublin, all of them get afforded the luxury of being sat front row and considered the new media, right? You're yeah. obviously a part of a sort of new, new media and a subsequent generation. Who do you view as your contemporaries? My contemporaries are in the second row now. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> and we're fine with that. I don't have a problem with the second row. I'm not going to throw a fit because I'm not in the front row. Would the pictures be better? My God, they would. But you know what? It's fine. I think the one person that I always will find one of my favorite influencers, if I can call him an influencer, is Luke from Huddle Mode. Mm -hmm. Because Luke is like nice and genuine and he's like down to earth. You know, me and Luke after a show, we're like, I'm going to get a burger in the middle of Paris. And we're like, yes, <laughs> let's do it. <laughs> but, you know, I, I love people that do not have an ego about themselves. Mm -hmm. And that is very rare to find. Like Luke is definitely on the top of my list when it comes to that. But there's other people that are great. Lias is great. Osama is very nice. You know, I'm, I'm just talking about them like I know them for 1700 years. But they're very nice kids. Taylor from TikTok, one of my closest friends, actually. But these are the people that I really like go to to see their opinion. We sit down after a show. Me and Luke sit down after a show and we're like, what did you think? He's like, I loved it or hated it. I do the same thing. And we kind of debate about it because like Luke is somebody who's knowledgeable about fashion history. We're in the same lane. We talk about books. We talk about like, what's your next book to get? I, I did not like this book. I would not spend my time on it. It's very much like that. So I think that there's a couple of great people that are my contemporaries. My God, that makes me feel like so legit. The word contemporaries. <laughs> well, you're actually bringing up something that I think is important for us to expand upon, which is ego, right? I mean, yeah. you are right in that the industry is made up of egos and icons and it's sort of the stakes and ladders of it all. But at the end of the day, ego is very much a form of armor for most people. You know, you can talk to some of the biggest editors and members of the front row in the industry who have been at it for years and in privacy, they'll tell you what they often don't enjoy about going to shows and the whole experience of the political tensions and the arrival yeah. and the chaos and where you're sad and this and that. And so 
what are your thoughts on, or I guess not necessarily your thoughts, but how is it that you go about being the boy that still grabs a burger in between shows and keeps it real and chill when you are navigating this complex industry filled with big personalities and all of the fabulousness? I think it's my it's the way that I came up in this industry. The way that I started watching shows and started talking about them is watching them on my Instagram live with people like staring at my iPad. I would go live on my Instagram and we would watch the show together on the iPad. And I like that. I went to one Chanel show and I was super happy that they invited me because I always wanted to do a Chanel show. But the thing is that this is going to sound awful. I don't need to be physically present to see if I'm going to like it or not. That's the thing. So I think that the way that I came up was like, well, runaway, this picture, that picture. So I, if I see it on a screen, I'm fine. It's nothing that I'm going to get pissed off because I'm not there. Mm-hmm. So for you, I, the, I think, stor- the sources of status aren't really the same. They don't necessarily apply to how you show up I mean, in the space. I mean, listen, I'm sure that influencers are going to be pissed off when I say this, but Instagram is not real. I think that people are keep forgetting that. People are not going to show you that they're having a tough time on Instagram. They're going to show you, oh my God, look where I was. I know influencers that posted on Instagram the same experience that I had that hated the whole experience. But on Instagram, it was perfection. Every story was like, oh my God, I'm having the time of my life. Meanwhile, they're like crying in their room. You know, people are not going to show the weakness. People are not going to show that they're vulnerable. Instagram, as much as I love the platform, is the platform of fake reality. And I think that when you realize that the people are maybe are not having a great time and there is a story behind every smile and there's a story behind every picture, and that story might not be the best one. I can speak from my own experience. Some of the worst moments of my life were at the fashion show. Not because of fashion, but it was because of the like the reasons that are like very personal to me. I was at one show when I was crying because my personal life was not the best. I was literally sobbing. And people are like, oh my God, he must be enjoying the show. <laughs> and I'm like, the show is good, but like not to the tear point. When you present people with just perfection, people are always going to expect perfection. And I think now we're coming to this reality where people do want to know you if you're having a bad day. I don't have a problem saying that I'm having a bad day. Not every day is perfect. And I think that that's what's missing from fashion. There's this illusion of perfection that is constantly being portrayed and constantly being pushed. It's constantly being in your face, but there is no reality to it. Like when you see every event on social media, it looks perfect. I want to be there. But then when you get there, you're like, okay, nice. You know, but don't you, again, to be devil's advocate, because you're making some really interesting points, don't you feel as though, I definitely love that you're someone who shows that both can coexist and that being honest doesn't negate being happy, excited, inspirational yeah. or aspirational. But at the same time, to your point about how things like shows or events are depicted in public forums, such as social media, I mean, do you really think it's necessary to always show the underbelly? The world has to dream. No, 100%. Mm -hmm. But when you show that the world has to dream, you're going to create 24-7 dream. You know, like the girls that are like going to the galas and everything, they're not going to tell you that their feet hurt because the shoes are very uncomfortable. They're not going to say that. They're not going to tell you that they sat down the whole night because they could not walk because of the heels. Everybody's going to smile for a picture. And that's fine. I think that just people have to realize that it's not as perfect as it looks. Of course. And I think we're at a point where that's definitely true. Would you say that's one of the things that potentially differentiates your generation of new media from those we discussed prior? I think so. 
I you... think so. I know influencers that like, you know, I follow and they're going to come to an event and just be like, it wasn't as good as you expected it to be. And I'm like, you know what? I like that. I like to know the reality of the things. Mm-hmm. So is it a little bit shady towards the company that invited them? Yes. But it's the reality at the end of the day. And I think that like everybody seems to be running away from the reality. I love a dream. Trust me. There is no one that loves fashion dreaming more but i'm like let's dream of great clothes also let's not dream of mediocrity and place it to be like the next best thing that's why i love shows that have a theme and they take you away from reality for 13 to 20 minutes if i was in the time of mcqueen and galliano i would love the hell out of those shows because i would be teleported to a completely different world but it feels like that is getting extinct Storytelling is definitely more and more important for anybody who wants to have mind share in this oversaturated world of information, which is something we talk about quite a bit on this show. What do you think of or how would you describe effective storytelling that you've seen brands do well that really catches your eye and something you think most people should know about? I think when it comes to storytelling, like when especially if you're talking about like the runway shows and the collections, it's so important. For me, it makes the collection better. If the collection is good, that storytelling aspect makes it just better. If you understand what you're trying to portray and what you're trying to say with the collection, building a great set. And there's people that have done that so well, like from Karl Lagerfeld to Marc Jacobs in Louis Vuitton. You know, like you came for the set. You were in a different world. And those are the stuff like Alessandro Michele and Gucci did the same thing. You know, McQueen did the same thing. When I think of Voss by McQueen, it's an experiment and it's so cool. And it's his 2006, the chess, um, the chess, that, that's brilliant. That, that is brilliant. So I'm like, you know what? Storytelling helps the collection be understood a lot better. Because for me, there's not a lot of designers right now that are doing that. And then there's designers that don't even need to do that because their clothes is too good. For example, I'm talking about two people in specific, and that is Matthew Blasey and Peter Mollier. I think that their clothes speak for themselves. I'm going to add Daniel Roseberry in that. Wes Gordon and Carolina Herrera, beautiful clothes. You know, you don't need to go overboard when the clothes is just good. I don't mind storytelling. I love storytelling. So for me, whenever I see something like that, it just tells me that people thought about the collection and they went a step further. Everybody can show a lookbook. And they can show just like clothes, but that kind of like just a little sprinkle on top for me, it just like does the whole thing. And is the dream for you to ascend to an existing role that's currently or has been previously occupied by the old guard? Or does the horizon look differently to you than what it has been for most? I'm aiming for Virginie Biard Shaw. No, I'm <laughs> uh, I want her to. I don't know what's going to happen. That's the thing. The reason why I'm doing this is because it makes me happy and I don't feel like I'm working and they said, do what you like in life and you will never have to work a day in your life. And One I of my love favorite that. quotes. Yeah. I love that quote. It is so true. So I don't know what's going to happen in the future. I would love to be, I'll tell you this. I would love to be a consultant for a couple of brands because there is so much potential in some brands that I don't think that they understand what else they can do. I hate to see that brands like, I'm going to take a very soundful name right now, but like Givenchy, for example, you know, for me, it is a blast for me to cut couture. In my head, I don't get that. The concept of like cutting couture, which from 1952 was a couture house, 
I don't get how someone says, yeah, let's do that. I understand that like when Bernard Arnault bought it, he wanted to cut couture. But from what I understand, he said, people would be super upset in the 90s. We're not going to cut it. That's fine. But Hubert de Gimanchi is one of the people that is the ground for couture as we know it today. The same thing as like Valenciaga, but like, you know, it, it was in that kind of like circle. So when somebody tells me like, yeah, we're going to cut couture, I'm like, you don't cut couture. Couture is what makes your house. It stands out from everybody else. Givenchy for right now, unfortunately, became just that brand with the white t-shirt that says Givenchy. Unfortunately, it did. As much as I love Matthew Williams' Elix, Givenchy for me wasn't the best. And I wish him all the best. I wish that he focuses on his brand because he's doing tremendous things there. It was just not the right fit. And when it's not the right fit, it's never going to work. But I do think that stuff like that, I would like to be a consultant on that just so I can stop the crimes, (laughs) the fashion crimes going around. (laughs) And last and final question, what is contemporary now? The first thing that comes to mind is, I don't know, I hate to say it, Kardashians still. Kardashians are still contemporary, which is... So crazy because, you know what, don't hate the player, hate the game. I always say that because people can like Kim Kardashian or dislike Kim Kardashian, but no one can dispute how smart of a businesswoman she is. She works more than anybody else that I know. She's constantly working on skims. She has a TV show. Yes, her come up was the way that it was, but... Fashion really should not be talking about the way that some people came up. I mean, like, this is the industry that is going to glorify Anna Delby. And uh, what's his name? The hot criminal, the mugshot guy. What's mm-hmm. his name? You know, so but of course, he had advertising campaigns yeah, and everything. Yeah. Correct. You know, so this is the fashion industry. The fashion industry is an industry that is like, oh, you're problematic. This is your seat at the front row. That's the industry, you know, and they're going to be okay with that, which for me baffles me. I understand how it works, but there has to be some kind of a a level of this is not good to promote. Kim did her thing and you know what? She became the most famous woman alive and that famous woman alive has a lot more impact and has a lot more influence than 80% of the fashion industry currently. And people can hate it or like it. That's on them to decide, but that's also the reality. So I think what's contemporary now, it's still Kardashians. It's still, oh my God, what is contemporary now? It's mediocrity. It's commercialism. It's lack of creativity. It's a lack of ideas and it's a lack of storytelling. It's the lack of theatrics. It's the lack of so many things in a fashion industry that the fashion industry has such a potential to be great and amazing, but it puts money before everything. Is unfortunate, but you still have great artists out there. You know, yeah, you I was going to say you really, you really zigged and then you zagged. I felt yeah. like the kids are all right listening to you and hearing <laughs> this perspective, and then no, suddenly you, we end on a big wah wah. No, you know, but, but <laughs> no, even now, like when you look at fashion, there's not a lot of fashion designers that can make you fall in love with fashion, but there still is. If you look at Daniel Roseberry and Scaparelli, there's artists that, like, if I was a student right now, I'd be like, wow, that is something. I can name five designers that can make me feel like that. I'm trying to be hopeful as much as I can. But whenever I'm hopeful, like something happens in the fashion news and they're like, nope, not today. So it's very much like that. But I think that we all have kind of like a Stockholm syndrome when it comes to fashion. So 
I can talk negatively all I want about fashion. Fashion is the reason why I wake up. I'm sure the fashion is the reason why you wake up. It's just kind of like a fuel that just like keeps giving you energy and keeps giving you something to do and something to talk about. It became an entertainment industry. And I like that. It's always connected with pop culture and these moments that like everybody's going to talk about. So as much as I criticize it, I would not want to have it any other way. That's contemporary now. <laughs> Thank you, Mr. B. You are very welcome. Thank you for this interview. Thanks for listening to this episode of What's Contemporary Now. A special thanks to our show's producer, Cheyenne Asadi, who makes it all possible. Original theme music by Joseph Top Miller and Chase Coughlin of The Black Soft. And visual design by Aaron Marr and Graham Prentice. Subscribe now to be the first to hear new episodes and for more content follow us on Instagram at What's Contemporary or visit us online at whatscontemporary.com. 